0: Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. Welcome to Season 18, Episode 21,
1: powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, and Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream, for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at Junior Prospect Hockey League. We have Pat Malloy to come on, on a regular player development segment and building an NHL player. Let's talk about Graham Clark, one of your clients. And I find it interesting. We'll have chats offline. And then, Oh, I talked to Graham and then he goes on a four or five or six game heater, uh, which he has again. And what's interesting to him for him is obviously that recent trades with New Jersey and some bodies went out and particularly, you know, baby in Zetterland. So there's an opportunity for Graham, you know, in next season to, as he finishes out his year in Utica is to make, make that chance and make that jump to the NHL and find a third line role for himself in that organization and talk about the progress he's made, particularly over this year, because last year was his first year in the American league. This year is his second and that's where I find the CHL players really get comfortable in that role and, and jumping into, you know, the American league and then find their footing and then to the NHL.
2: Yeah. As was, we all know, you know, the American league is, is definitely a grind and, and it's a real sounding board or a testing board for these young players to, you know, to figure out the grind of, of pro hockey. Um, and, you know, he's certainly figuring it out and, and, you know, he's having himself a year in the sense that he's showing that, his trajectory is, is to be a player. I think that will end up being a national hockey league player and and he's doing the things to, you know, to show everyone that, Hey, this is, this is in my trajectory and, um, you know, use this as a springboard year for himself. I mean, he's, he's, he's definitely improved and he's definitely figured that league out. That's a hard league to create offense in. And so that's what sort of makes me really excited for the next step for him because he's generating offense, um, you know he's doing a lot of things at a really really high rate in that league, and it's it's tough to generate in that league as we all know.
3: Pat, does he fall more into the Tyler Toffoli territory, where when you first got him, the main priority was to get his uh, skating mechanics up to par so that he could uh, play at the pace necessary in the AHL and eventually, hopefully, the NHL. Somewhat, um, he's he's definitely a guy that's you know
2: he, he's not gonna you know he's not gonna challenge Connor McDavid in a race anytime soon, but what he is, he's a little different than Toff was in the sense that um, his half court game is extremely, extremely good. His blue line in play um, in the way that he finds ice, the way that he uses his edging um, to, to you know, extend possessions and those sorts of things is, is really good. Whereas Toph is a guy that sort of arrives off the rush a little bit more and does some of those sorts of things. Um, Graham's a little bit more of a, um, A stick on puck player if that makes sense and that he'll create some room via deception via good reads um you know via use of small edging and, and manipulative movements that'll create some time so he's a little bit more carry to shoot versus arrive to shoot um when you look at sort of the stylistic differences of those two players um so to a certain degree yes again two sort of different makeups of player in terms of body type athleticism Um, And then just in how they sort of manipulate shift to shift, they're a little bit different. So, um, you know, with Graham, you'll find he's got the puck on his stick a little bit more. And so he has to generate a little bit of a, you know, more of it on his own versus um, being a finisher from that perspective. And the one thing he's got is a great shot, but um, that's one of the things we've worked a lot recently on is just setting up shots and doing some things that aren't quite as predictable.
1: Thoughts about him when he, if he transitions into the NHL because he he doesn't have to carry the puck as often and probably won't in that respect so there's going to be some a lot of more give and go in that in in that time in the time and space available at the NHL and then be able to use his his shot so do you think what he's learning in terms of what he's ha- handling at the American Hockey League that there's going to be some adjustment to his game, but he'll be able to use what he's been really good at the American Hockey League in small pockets of time. It won't happen as often in the American League, but when it does happen, it's something that he doesn't have to think about and he can just utilize.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think with his hockey sense, this is a high end player and, and, you know, was a really good player growing up. Um, You know, he, he was amongst some of the best in the province growing up. And with him, you know, at the National Hockey League level where, you know, everything can happen just cleaner, just smoother, just quicker, I think that's going to open up another layer to his game because what he's shown, you know, in the American League is he's, he's able to extend possessions and do some things on his own, um, partially because he can, but partially because he has to. Um, I, I believe the game will get a little bit easier for him at the National Hockey League level simply because, you know, the timing and the quality of, of competition will improve, obviously, but the quality of... Of line mate, for instance, in terms of what they're able to help you accomplish as a group is going to improve, and so I, I'm pretty optimistic that what you'll see is is you know a spike in his ability to contribute simply because um, you know the people around him are going to be able to you know maybe think the game at that level um, and, and complement one another. So it, it's it's pretty exciting times to think so you know what he might be capable of.
3: When you look at his puck protection skill set, you always talk about uh, trying to buy time and space. Uh, Where do you feel that he has developed in that sense from when you first got him till now as a pro? Um, Just
2: initiating contact, doing some things in terms of um, forcing people into doing things they don't want to do. So recognizing how to skate the game versus getting them into foot races. And so one of the things I think from a perspective of a player that's always had good hands and good offensive instincts Um, You know, the one thing the American League really does is it humbles you in terms of things like puck possession because you're playing older, stronger players um, more often in the grind of that league. So really that's shined an emphasis on, um, you know, offensive zone puck retrievals uh, and then what you're doing on first touch to create that quality next play. And so that live fire drilling, if you will, by developing in that league has allowed him to create, you know, more of a certainty in terms of extending my possessions you know, getting my feet under my hips and generating some separation um, and getting people to move in ways that maybe they don't want to, that allows him to to do, you know, what he wants to do. And he's really good with the puck on his stick. So, um, you know, when I, I first delved into it this year with him, um, you know, the big thing is, is he was generating lots of opportunity, lots of shots, lots of different things from good areas. So then it was sort of tweaking and looking at and saying, all right, what little ways can we take a possession where we access a higher percentage area and turn it into even more of a scoring chance than just a shot attempt from a good area.
3: What
1: well, are your thoughts on this off the puck? Uh, because that's, you know, what NHL coaches are like, if I can't trust you, cause you don't, you, uh, particularly if he plays on the third line, you are not going to have the puck very often. So what are you doing when you don't have the puck?
2: you know with him he's such an intelligent player that i have every confidence that he recognizes how to fit in you know how how to earn the right to advance and so you know i have no issues his level of maturity is through the roof he gets it he wants to be a player and and he's he's intuitive and smart enough to ask for help and he's intuitive and smart enough to pick up the sometimes the best play is is no play at all if that makes sense and and doing the thing that keeps you know a puck from getting into a bad spot against and so you know he's a guy that uh, i talk a lot about that you know he improves the condition of the puck and sometimes that means just getting it as far away from from your net and from your scoring area against as as you can so um you know i don't see there being much issue with him transitioning uh, at that level because his his mind for the game is is all there
3: when you look at his long-term development do you feel that there's a lot of opportunity maybe on a power play because of what you uh, discussed with his shooting mechanics is increased with his catch release as wheelhouse.
2: Yeah. I I mean, you know, I I talked a lot about his half court game. Um, You know, when he either attacks downhill or rolls up and then reattacks downhill Um, his ability to fire a puck from neutral forward, his ability to disguise a shot into a dart pass are all real high end. Um, he plays the game, you know, from the shoulders up with his with his head up constantly. So um, his ability to dissect and, and to play between checks is something that I've been really impressed with this year. Um, you know, when when we see him generating offense, it's not like he's firing, you know, darts from bad angles and they're going in. He's playing between coverages. Um, he's shooting through and past and around sticks. Um, so, he, you know, he's really got a, a lot of things in his game that I think will transfer to the power play level at the National Hockey League you know, without a question.
1: Is there any opportunity for him to play some time on the penalty kill in terms of you know, him being a cerebral player? Cause I find you can figure out if a player can play, even if he doesn't play penalty kill just on his five on five play, whether that he could be an effective penalty killer on a, maybe on a second or third unit.
2: You know, it, it really team by team, you know, if, if you've got those teams that really covet, um, short space skating and and those sorts of things but if you're you know an organization or a team that really values smarts on your pk um he's your guy because you know he recognizes the races he can and can't win and he doesn't let what he can't do get in in the way of what he can and so um you know if, if you're a fan of of intelligent approach to killing he's definitely that guy if you're going to be a pressure and run type of of penalty kill he may not be your guy um, you, you know, you're often going to find a guy that might work a little better in straight lines than him. Um, but, you know, again, I think organizationally will really depend on how they want to kill and, and the way they want to do it. But, you know, I, I think the the old saying goes, you know, brains never go out of style. And he's a very intelligent hockey player. He's very cerebral to his surroundings. And, you know, he's the he's the type of player that can make people around him better. So, um, you know, what I've seen in the last two, three years with him is just maturity has really come through the roof in terms of recognizing what his game is and, and the areas he wants to attack in order to be better. And I think he's answered a lot of questions as to where he stands within his organization, just on the kind of year that he's
1: having this year. Well, Pat, we want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Give us some really interesting insight on Graham Clark and we look forward to speaking to you next week.
2: Thanks for having me guys.
1: That's Pat Malloy, skills and development coach. We're going to take a short break on hockey prospect radio. We'll be back right after this.
4: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics.
0: You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We are back and powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're happy to bring on Jason Buchla in our Sports uh, Scouts Perspective segment. And this week's topic... Is a doozy for me is evaluating high school players or players from non-traditional markets. And I emphasize the high school because I recall being at the Minnesota high school uh, championships and almost not getting out of there with my life intact. Um, I probably shouldn't have mentioned, you know, I was a Western guy and they were talking, asking about the BC hockey league and the, you know, Alberta junior hockey league. And I just said, look, I think maybe a small handful of players could play in junior A in Canada in those two leagues. And the rest would be a hard time getting through junior B and I almost got killed. So, you know, I got that experience. Plus the other thing is I just, I don't see high school in person enough for me to have a really strong reference. So when I go see them play, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Is this kid that good? Are they this bad? Or, or maybe he's a player that you expect or maybe you shouldn't even have it have to expect, but you know, there's a thought that he's going to be a dominant player and you see him for a couple of games and he's like, okay, what are you doing here? I just find scouting that level of hockey very challenging because I just simply don't do it enough. And so I end up having to defer. Like what's your experience in that situation of having to evaluate high school players and, put them in the same groupings as junior players or even junior age players who play pro in Europe.
7: Yeah, no, it's, it's a difficult, uh, scenario to wrap your mind around at times, you know, there's, there's a lot of moving parts. So, you know, you see a kid who's in the Minnesota high school league, um, you know, in the, in the fall, you know, they go play in the elite league in the fall and, you know, that, that's kind of like their all-star, um, a set of games before their actual season starts in Minnesota high school. Some of the other ones go and play in the USHL before the start of their high school season and then return back to high school and then go back to the USHL. So you're really getting a taste of a prospect in a lot of different scenarios. Uh, one of the red flags for me, of course, is if he's performing at what I would call a, um, an acceptable level that he's on my radars to be a potential draft in, the, in that upcoming draft cycle. At the USHL level early in the year, coming out of like, uh, you know, the the fall tournament at the USHL, for example, if he's on my radar, um, and then he goes back to Minnesota high school, and he doesn't play above the level, um, you know, now I'm concerned. And then, of course, I got to wait on it for him to either scale up his game at the high school level or uh, return to the USHL at the end of the season. So, there's a lot of moving parts in there. Um, you know, a guy like even Brock Besser, who plays, obviously, in Vancouver, we all know, uh, you know, he's a first-round pick in the NHL. Um, you know, he comes out of uh, Minnesota High School, and, you know, he spends a couple of different – he has a couple of different stops. Um, I'm just looking over his historical data here. And, you know, he comes out of Burnsville, and then he goes to Sioux City in the USHL. But then the following year, he spends another full year in the USHL, with Waterloo so you know we start laying eyes on him at the high school level um, but really his growth potential becomes into more focus at the USHL level so to your point Shane um, it's not an easy task and historically um, the actual percentage of players that jump right from uh, high school hockey to college hockey as a draft and then go right to the NHL or turn pro after that. It's 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 pretty low. It's it's somewhere around six or seven percent total.
3: Jason, do you consider it the most dangerous area to scout? M- me personally, some of my biggest misses ever have been out of high school. Uh, Jay O'Brien comes to mind. I don't think Jack Rathbone's going to be what I first thought he was going to be. Uh, not that I know we're talking Minnesota, but Shattuck System. I was very high on Jackson Lacombe. I still like him, but back then I really liked him. Uh, wh- where are you when it comes to determining how dangerous the high school scouting environment is?
7: Uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. Like I still, after all these years doing it, I still haven't wrapped my mind around um, being 100% confident and making a pick in the top four rounds of the draft, for example, with some of these kids. I mean, some of them are exceptionally elite. You know, I get it. You know, like Nick Bugstack came out of there. Brock Besser went to the USA. Like there are some guys. But um, as a whole, you really have to rely on your your scouting that territory to – uh mine out a lot of information on the player um get you a lot of background on them we have to get in touch with uh, whatever college commitment he has because that's going to tell us a lot too those guys are very much dialed in and in terms of their commitments and you know the plat or the the plan like the plan going forward coming out of minnesota high school for example or any other high school or, or prep school shattuck um i'm i'm um I'm very wary about it. And it's no disrespect to the players. I am, if, if, if somebody were to ask me, are you okay with them going back to Minnesota high School? Would you rather them stay in the USHL for the whole year? My, my answer would be, I'd rather him stay in the USHL for the whole year. That makes me feel more comfortable.
1: I mean, and I understand that because it's they're It's just easier to project because you have, it's just more stable in terms of the range of players within the USHL comparative to any high school or any prep school from and that's what makes it challenging is that it's a chasm between the best player and the worst player sometimes in high school a chasm oh, and that's what it makes it, for me it makes it more challenging to figure out um particularly cuz I don't see it as often but even if you did you know it's just it just makes that that range of uncertainty makes it more challenging um and then that, that's how we can transition into you know, trying to evaluate players in non-traditional markets. So if you sort of look at, you know, Latvia, you know, Belarus, um, you know, those types, Slovenia, those types of marketplaces, thoughts on going into those locations and drafting players and scouting players out of those locations, because there's been some really good successes, particularly out of Latvia. But, you know, you have to be careful in those areas as well. And that's something that Brad and I talk quite a bit about is those non-traditional areas.
7: Yeah, you're you know you're onto something there. Some of those players from the non traditional areas, as you know, um, start bouncing over and playing in Sweden. Um, you know, even in Finland sometimes now. Um, but for the ones that stay back home, um, there's a little bit more work that that goes into it. And and it's actually it's a it's a good news story because places like Latvia, uh, like we drafted in Florida, uh, the Coley Oconnit kid a couple of years ago, and you know they had graduated to the top tier of the U-18s, but leading up to that point in time, he was a guy, or those players were were ones that you'd have to go see at the B-Pool tournaments, and the B-Pool tournaments, the scouting people shouldn't be scared away from B-Pool events. I mean, um, it's almost like the Minnesota High School example, right? Like your big fish, small pond type thing. Uh, Well, Minnesota, people think that it's, no disrespect, but they think that's a really big pond of players, and it is. It's good hockey for what it is, but on the world stage, um, you know, there's some really good players in the B pool and some of these smaller nations, you have to do your work. Um, you have to get it done. And, um, you know, if you look at the Reinbacher kid, even this year, right, he's playing in, the, in Switzerland at the, the, the pro level. So, um, it's nice to have a back end of information on those guys before they show up in these other nations. And, uh, that's all part of scouting Shane. Uh, you know, you've been doing it for years. You guys, uh, you guys completely get it. Uh, Uh, the year ahead of their draft cycle is an important year to get Intel on those players.
3: Yeah. I remember, uh, Rudolf Spalser a unique story because he's Latvian playing in the Norwegian top league at 16, which is like super rare. <laughs> One more unique uh, case studies in the game to try to monitor and figure out what he was going to become. And I still remember a lot of people, including myself, I thought he was going to be a middle six forward at the NHL level, um, if not more. And now it looks like he's struggling just to fill a roster spot. Very, very tricky to evaluate these players when they're playing in the non-traditional markets, especially when they accelerate at the pro level. Uh, when you look at um high school you you mentioned a a bit about risk do you mind touching more on that aspect of it uh because not every player as you mentioned is going to be Brock Besser and, and and get drafted in the first round when from a scouting perspective from a director of scouting perspective what does high school mean to you in terms of evaluating from a risk perspective
7: so if you're if you're in a meeting and on your draft board you've got uh Four players, um, one's coming out of uh, a high school or prep school, another one's coming out of uh, the CHL, and then you've got one coming out of, call it Russia, and the other one somewhere else in Europe. So you got, I'm drawing you a picture here. Every one of those players are on the clock differently after you select them, right? So those uh, the European players, as we all know, uh, we're going to have four years uh, to monitor the development over there before we have to offer them a contract. The CHL player, he's going to be on the clock for two years, we're going to have to make a decision. That player coming out of Minnesota, again, because he's uh, very likely going to college, um, You know, we're looking at at least four years on, on him before we have to make a decision. Um, a lot of those guys, when they get to be really good college players, they're looking to leave early, but we manage that if they're that good when they get to that stage. So all things being equal, it becomes a strategy in terms of your development, uh, like your depth, uh, organizational depth chart. And you want to manage guys in and out. Uh, you want to forecast that if they hit on all their marks. Um, and then you also want to say to yourself things like, OK, well, that major junior player, imagine he was the other player, the Minnesota high scorer, the USHL player, and he was going to college. Would that extra year really benefit him? Are we forecasting something that, like that would benefit him a great deal in his development? Um, all those things kind of go into a melting pot and then you're going to spit out the best option. And these decisions are made in the back half of the draft. These aren't decisions that are made in the front half of the draft. When you start talking about really high end guys, like the Brock Bessers, for example, you know, they're not going to college for three or four years, like just as a given. So, um, your strategy is different with the high end guys, but the, the later guys, um, you're splitting hairs, um, and, Generally speaking, the major junior guys are ready earlier, but that doesn't mean that in comparison they're going to be as good in four years, if that makes sense. So it's, it's delicate. You have to, you have to through experience, you make the right call. Hopefully, (laughs) you hopefully make the right call.
1: (laughs) Well, Jason, thank you very much again for coming on our show. Always appreciate the insight from the scouting perspective and look forward to speaking next week after the trade deadline's over.
7: Fantastic guys. Thanks for having me.
1: That's Jason Buchla. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back right after this.
4: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Stats video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics.
0: Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We are back empowered powered by Instad Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're going to talk about the New York Rangers prospects as we're, you know, a lot of stuff around the trade deadline. So, um, like it's happened before, we have talked about players, and then three or four days later, they were traded. So let's get the Rangers. <laughs> let's get the Rangers Not fans the first updated. Not, Not the, the first, first time. time; won't be the last time. Let's get the Rangers fans updated on some of the kids in their system, and let's talk about Adam Sakura. Now, both you and I, you know, it's really difficult because you don't want to be a fan of a player because it skews your viewing of them, right? And then you look at them sometimes through rose-colored glasses. But my viewings of Adam Sakura at even particularly, you look at recently at the World Juniors, I'm like, I looked at him and I go, okay, that's the kind of player that an NHL team's going to want on your third line. He's going to give you supplementary offense, but he has the ability to be a constant gnat mosquito in the best player's ear defensively. Because he's so quick, but he's so intelligent, a good stick, knows how to tank angles, he's relentless, got a motor. And he's just going to piss people off. And that's the kind of player that you're going to want in the playoffs long term. And uh, if I was knocking on the door for the New York Rangers in a trade, I'd be asking for Adam Sequeira if I could get him out of there.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We loved him. Uh, you know, top 35 in our black book. Uh, I never had to argue once with Mark about him, which is rare. It's rare for me not to have to argue with my director of scouting about certain ranges for players. Um, so so Secor is a very unique player in the sense that when you look at uh, – Possible outcomes with players. There's usually a large range of outcomes, from anywhere from a fourth liner. So when you're talking top end of the draft, from a first liner to what if they fail, become a third liner. There's a lot more variation in the outcome. Some can be a natural center and stay there. Others are gonna have to move to the wing. Or with defensemen, if they don't develop their skating, they might have to get insulated and drop down the lineup. The thing with Adam score that made him very unique is that everyone on our staff and every and myself and anybody you talk to we almost everybody said the same thing which was yeah he's a third line energy winger and he's a specialist uh, defensive defensive player who you put on a penalty kill and that's literally what he, what he was in his draft year that's what he looks like now and that's what I think he's going to look like in the future and th- and again that's rare it's usually there's a larger range so um one of the reasons that he has such a specific um uh outcome to us as scouts is the fact that he has a very, very high floor, right? And you, you touched on that floor by what you yes. discussed. The motor yeah. is elite. The skating is excellent, mechanically and power-wise. He was only the youngest players in the draft last year, uh, which needs to be taken into consideration. The, the argument with him in his draft year was, is there enough talent for him to be effective enough at the NHL level? Right. And I argued yes. And that was because I got to see a lot of him. I, I, I had a ton of viewings of this kid. Yeah, I thought so some of I. his best performances were towards the end of the season. I remember the World Championships against Canada. I thought he was fantastic. Um, you know, he's not. Is he going to be a big time scorer off the rush? No. Is he going to end up on highlight reels uh, most of the time? No. But he's what it is, op- as you mentioned, super pest. He's yeah. a chaos generator despite being small. Um, I think one of the best ways to describe Sakura would be that if he was 6'3, he would have gone significantly higher in the draft. 20 His spots, play style, yeah. Yeah, 100%. The yeah. play style is meant for a larger player. My player comparable for him stylistically was a. I a, had a, a two comparisons. One was uh, Tyler Mott, because uh, I think he's going to be a penalty kill specialist they Great. rely on in critical situations. To better offense, so, Yeah. Yes, yeah, a higher offensive ceiling. And the other was Kyler Yamamoto. Lower offensive yes. ceiling, but very similar play style. He has to be the guy on the boards despite being a bit smaller. He's gonna yes. have to be the energy player on a line. And he could theoretically complement players up in a lineup potentially, depending on how he projects. So um I have liked his development. I was hoping I had projected him to hit about 30 points this year in extra league in Slovakia. He's gonna go under that a little bit, but from what I've seen in extra league and what I've seen at the U20 level, I'm not too concerned about no. the outcome right now. I think I I, I love the pick at the time. I said on the show, I thought the New York Rangers hit a home run. Uh, Anytime you get an actual player that's very useful, come playoff hockey, uh, in the sixty range in a draft, that's a great pick. I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly what they have. Uh, it's just for him. It's. I hate saying it's the most stereotypical thing. Unfortunately, we hear it a bit too often on the show. But with him, it really is true. And that's he must get bigger and stronger. And, and by bigger, I mean obviously not taller. He's not gonna. He's not gonna become six three out of nowhere. But he needs to get significantly stronger so that his type of game, the style he plays, can translate and be maximized at the NHL level.
1: Right. So a lot. To and leave. that's three years probably three more years, three more seasons after this, right? And that's okay. That's okay because that's where he needs to be. And the fact that he was drafted a little bit later actually affords him the time because there's less pressure on him from an organizational standpoint to get him into the lineup or get him into the American League. So he's afforded probably an extra year, maybe an extra year and a half, and that will benefit him greatly. So when he does come in, he might come in as a 23-year-old. But that twenty-three to thirty-two, that that ten-year range, you could have a really like valuable asset on your third line that just becomes a bit of a linchpin for that line, and we've seen that in other successful organizations. So you just sort of look like, you know, Sorelli in Tampa Bay, just became this linchpin player, and he did not, you know, he didn't. He took a little while to get exactly where he wanted to be, but that's why I'm really interested in, in Sakura. I want to get your thoughts on Brennan Othman as well. Um, Thoughts about him this year for him. I mean, obviously he was in Flint and he went to Peterborough uh, in the trade, um, had a really strong world juniors as well. Thoughts about next steps for Brennan Othman and where you see him down the road.
3: Well, he, he actually shares some similarities to Sakura. The main one being they're hard to play against. Yes, there's very few shifts that they take off. That's the, there's a it's interesting with the Rangers organization that that seems to be a, a general quality that they're really looking for now, and that makes sense because it, they're and, going you know, for the playoffs. No, well, not only that, but they're I think they're realizing through some of their their higher end picks that are not panning out like that they had hoped that they're they're now. Focusing on the qualities that are not allowing those players to develop. So, for instance, and I got him wrong, I'll be the first to say it, is Vitaly Krafsov, you know, I have Vitaly Vitali is extremely high in his draft here, even higher than we had him in the black book there. Uh, I'm top three. And uh, the, there's a lack of uh, the right mental acumen you need in order to develop in the top six, four he theoretically should become. Right. And so one right. thing that you noticed with these players, with Brennan Hoffman and with Adam score and with some of the other players they've drafted recently is there's a much higher mental compete level in them at this age. Right. Their, um, grit, so, atri-
1: their grit attributes yeah, are much higher. Our,
3: their like, grit is off courage, the Courage, perseverance,
1: right? adaptability. That's right. Like their, That's right. their resilience they,
3: is much it, higher. Yeah. They're not letting it come to question. And so I, I give props to the Rangers organization uh, uh, for recognizing you know, that they, they, they should go out and find these types of players that have to worry about it, you know. Um, so with Brennan, Brennan Othman is definitely a much more talented version. I, I did give him some comps to Adam him score, but they're not very similar in, in a lot of other ways. Brennan Othman's a much higher end ceiling in terms of his offensive potential. He's a much better shooter. He's uh, much more dangerous off the rush. Well, he has a much better shot quality. He's going to be a power play weapon. He has an excellent one-timer. Um, Brennan, Brennan's also an actual dual threat which really helps him and the reason that it's very important for him to be a natural dual threat is because he out of any weakness he really has it's the mechanics within the skating base he's not a not a functionally very good skater and I don't think he projects to ever be one that said if you're not going to be a functionally very good skater make sure that you have the frame to hold physically and make sure you can pass a puck so that you can as you like to discuss generate give and go, go sequences generate short area playmaking sequences to allow him to get into those high end areas in the ice so he can get a shot off so you know with Brennan I think um you know i thought i love the pick just like score i love the pick i think it's i think it's one of those situations where i rarely say this but i'd be very surprised if he doesn't play in top six capacity uh um, yeah, it's just it, all um, about getting that conditioning conditioning it, uh, it, rem- it reminds be. me a
1: little bit now they're not exactly the same player but there's they have some similar attributes and when i watched Brendan gallagher play with the vancouver giants and of, of course not the you know most fleet of foot and the, and the greatest skater, but he played with a high motor. Like his feet were always moving, he was always in the middle of something, and that helped him in terms of playing that pace because he knew he had to always constantly move. And I think Brendan Othman is going to have something similar in like in his game in that respect. Is that he recognized, he has enough self awareness that I just when I hit the ice I got to go 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 like he, there's no. Yeah, I can't um, yes, he's a pretty good thinker, but he can't be one of those cerebral players that stops and starts and looks and like he's just gotta like hell bent for leather. Like his ass, like his ass is on fire every time because that's how he's gonna end up being successful. That's how I think he's gonna have to play if he's gonna be in a top six role in the NHL, particularly in the East with the Rangers.
3: Yeah, well, one thing that's unique about him is that uh, like score, he, he's a chaos generator. Um, but he does it much like Brady Kachuk, where Brady Kachuk's a very smart player yeah. who knows when to dial it way up uh, and and play over the edge. Othman has that quality, uh, and what I mean by that is like he's not going to just bulldoze or bull rush through two or three players and uh fight and and wastes his energy uh we we just had a discussion with pat Malloy discussing how how players are capable of splitting defense properly making sure they they create um miscommunication between defenses and getting their wires crossed Othman's capable of that he's also very good at timing how to spin off of pressure he's very good at reacting dynamically to resistance which is something i bring up on this on this program uh, a lot uh it's he has good instincts for it uh which is which is critical for his game uh because again he's going to get when you look at him projecting as a top six, you look at other defensemen he's going to go up against. So, for instance, just say, theoretically, his own teammate, Ke'Andre Miller. The amount, right. the amount of time... is going to be able to close his gap very quickly relative to Othman and Othman's trying to generate off a rush. So what Othman's going to have to do is be able to understand how to use his frame to counteract Ky- Kyandre Millard, to buy himself enough time and space to make plays, right? And that's something that he is projecting to be able to do, where with a lot of some, or not a lot, but some of these other bigger power forwards, they don't have that quality, and that's why they can't get from the AHL to the NHL level, right? So when, when I, I, I emphasize Physical instincts for a reason because they're way more important than some people would think. Uh, everybody says, "Well, you can you can build the ancillary skill set uh, needed physically. You can get some, a player stronger, and, and you can get a player uh, statically stronger, and then physically more powerful." It is very hard for a player. Who na- lacks natural instincts to understand how to create weight distribution and use it to their advantage, or create leverage advantages when they don't understand how to apply them? It really does take some time, and for other for some prospects, they never understand it. Well, they never most, develop. It.
1: Mo- most big big players don't know how to do that because they've never had to do it. They've never had so to true. do that. Yeah. They've never had to use leverage because they're not yes, a small yeah. player. Sometimes
3: they, they're just so dominant. Yeah, it, it takes them a lot of time because they've never dealt with anything like a 220-pound version of more Sider that's coming at them, right? right. So it, it's, exactly. it's one of those situations where, yeah, you, they, that's why power forwards. If people are wondering, like, why do power forwards take longer to develop? That is usually one of the reasons. It's yeah. because they can't just – they have to start thinking in ways they haven't thought before because they're so used to being physically dominate at the lower uh, age age groups.
1: We're going to take a quick break on hockey prospect right when we come back. We'll continue to talk about the New York Rangers prospects right after these messages.
4: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics.
0: Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are
1: back in powered by Inside Hockey, often the largest video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're continuing to chat about the New York Rangers prospects and their system. Let's chat chat about Will Cooley, who's got some games at the NHL level. And you know, we talk about we've talked about two pains in the asses for the opposition. Here's a third. Here's another one who, you know, maybe in some respects, people didn't think he was going to be a consistent NHL player. I think he's going to find a way to get there. And, you know, he's a big kid. He's like 6'3", well over 200 pounds. And I think he's just going to bull rush his way into the NHL. Will it be a high-end player? No. But I think he could be end up being, you know, a useful F9, like on your third line, the guy who doesn't have to drive, but a guy who can get in on the forecheck and bang bodies and be able to protect the puck and get greasy in front of the net and, you know, cycle the puck and just wear down defenders and, you know, take care of business physically when it's necessary. I think he has those capabilities thoughts on how he's taken the next step because, you know, I thought, you know, particularly as a rookie, you know, in Hartford, yeah, he got 18 games, but you know, this year is really his first year as a pro, you know, I thought he's, adapted exceptionally well to the American League. And that's that can be sometimes surprising. Usually first years have a hard time.
3: Well, I, I think the best way to sum up uh, Cooley is that he's what the Rangers were hoping Julian Gauthier was going to be. I think that that's really what he was. And that's why Julian Gauthier became expendable. I think it's because right. they saw what they needed to in Cooley and they said, this is the power forward that we can put in, down in the lineup that can give us real playoff minutes. Um, so one of the most unique things about this player, so we just talked about, possible ranges right as a scout yeah. that's what we do is we have to think about best case worst case scenarios and most likely scenario right will cooley is one of those examples where he was all over the map he could be a top six he could have been a third line or a fourth line or he could never play that's where he was he was all over the map yeah. and the reason was because unlike adam sakura who had an excellent draft season the floor was very high he was well established uh and unlike brendan Othman, who had the same thing very high floor because that motor that compete the drive the consistency, it was all there uh Cooley was not Cooley had a down year in his draft year in fact a lot of people including myself thought he was better in his minus one than his draft season with Windsor.
1: I thought he tried to do too much in his draft year I thought he just he was doing a lot of different things that he that he was not going to do as a pro and he got I think he got caught trying to do a way too much on his team and too much of the burden was put on him in some respects
3: I, th- I think I think a big part of it was confidence. I, th- I think he lost his confidence early because he's a big time shooter and he wasn't scoring, and that that really can weigh on a player, especially in the draft year where you know yeah. they're going to apply a lot more pressure on themselves than they're going to fold on themselves, and then it's you know it's up to the kid to see how he bounces back from it. Uh, and I, you know, with Cooley, I think there was th- that struggle. There's also the fact that again, you're talking about a power forward with a lot of tools, right? His toolkits, yeah. there's a lot there, and I think. When, you, when you're dealing with a toolkit like that, I've just discussed this with Matt Boldy before, which is, and Matthew Nyes, which is that when you have so many options, it can be difficult to recognize what you're supposed to be. And I bring that up because it's very obvious now within his development that the Rangers have done a very good job of communicating with him exactly what they want from him with the play style he's bringing. His motor's better, his pace of play is much better, he's a more efficient player, he's a smarter player. I, I always thought he was more intelligent than he let on based off his production. Um, especially off the puck uh, it was just for me a matter of the fact that again when when you get down on yourself as a player you're not going to process information as quickly on the ice uh, you're just you're just- more of a delay, there's more of a delay there than there than there would be otherwise, right. and so I think that's what happened to him, uh, but one thing that, that kind of separates him as a depth forward which, again, I think that's what he projects to be, but a good one, is the fact that he has a real, real high-end shot in yeah. terms of mechanical ability the mechanics behind his shot are lethal, the problem is the timing of it. it, it still takes him a little too long to load, and I think that that's the transition there, is that he's starting to recognize the, the speed at the now at the NHL level, I haven't seen him play at the NHL. Level. But I have seen him play the AHL, and obviously it's a huge contrast to the OHL. And one thing I've recognized this season relative to last year was that he's not loading as much into it. He's he's just trying to get a shot quicker. There's a much more comfortable um, release point within his mechanics. And so that's going to play dividends for him because he is, he's, he doesn't see the ice that well. He's not a high-end playmaker, but he doesn't have to be because he has a huge frame. He skates like the wind. He's a very powerful kid. And he he has a ton of shot quality. He's greasy, yeah. as shot quality, and can get around the net. So the, when he hits the offensive zone, um, there, he is dangerous the second he hits that line because of that shot quality. He doesn't have to score every time. If he can just get uh, uh, rebounds that are in the right places for his teammates and then drive to the net himself, that's going to result in some greasy goals. It's going to result in chaos. That's what he needs to be. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, there's a theme here, right? Adam Sikora, Brendan Othman, uh, uh, Cooley. You look at all three, and yes, they all project now. To have that energy, to have the fire, they have the passion, they have the determination, and they look like playoff contributors. But what is interesting about the three of them is when you break them out individually, Cooley was the outlier of the three in the sense that he was the one that had the worst draft season of the three. He was the least projectable of the three, and he's the one that functionally had to switch more of his game than the other two in order to successfully translate like uh, translate like he is now.
1: Well, and he's also, and they rewarded him for it by giving them NHL games, like here's what the NHL is going to be like. I like when this happens with prospects where teams will bring them up, give them a a taste and reward and say, okay, this is a reward, but it's also a lesson at the same time is this is what to expect. Like you're going to have to go back to the American league. And this is what you're going to need to work on because you're going to get in, you're going to be all fired up the first game or two. You're going to be running on full adrenaline. But then that adrenaline's gonna like wane a little bit. And then you're gonna realize, oh, right, everything moves quicker, more precise. You have to be where you're supposed to be. Like, yes, there's an element of chaos he can bring to the game, but there's also a level of like discipline, not in terms of not taking penalties discipline, but in discipline in terms of his play, because your line mates and your defenseman are gonna expect you to be where you're supposed to be when they have to move the puck out of the defensive zone, especially. So if you're not there, you know, you're going to catch it, not only from your coach, but from, you know, your line mates and your defensemen, right? And that, I think those were a good lessons for him. Um, were you a little bit surpri- surprised that he's had such a successful, like first year really in the American league um, because, you know, he struggled a little bit and then you get into the American league and be, can be such a meat grinder as we've talked with many of our NHL like executives.
3: Uh, yeah, I'm sur- I'll am i be honest. Yeah, I'm surprised by his development based off his draft season and where he was to where he is now. Yeah, it's a testament of the kid. The kid's done, I'll be honest with you, he's done the exact opposite of Vitaly Kravtsov. He's listened, he's learned, he's developed, he's become exactly what he needs to be. He's modified his game in an uncomfortable way. It's very difficult for a player that seemingly lacks pace at times or lacks the consistency needed to end up having it at a higher rate at the pro level relative to the OHL. That's very rare. So that's a testament to the kid and it shows that he's doing the right things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's interesting is the Rangers get a lot of flack for having developmental issues. Uh, Capukako, Vitali Kravtsov Alexei Lafreniere come to mind. These high-profile kids, but Adam Fox developed in that system. Zach Jones is looking pretty good. Will uh Will Cooley is developing. So it's one of those situations where it's you know it's not as uh, black and white as people think. I
1: think. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it really depends on the individual. I'll give him credit for that. Brad and are going to take a short break, but stay tuned for hour two of Hockey Prospect Radio right after these short messages. <iedy>
4: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game, there is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat the Institute of Statistics.
6: Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at OutsideEdge.ca.
0: Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis. On Sirius XM, NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We're back in powered
1: by Instat Hockey and Junior Hockey. Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at JuniorProspectLeague.com. We're speaking with Mike McMahon from the College Hockey News about the news and notes of college hockey this week, and one of the interesting stories that you've been covering that I've been chomping at a bit to ask you about is the potential lawsuits that may come with NCAA and their challenge in terms of defining whether student athletes are employees and then how to properly compensate them based on the sport that they play because obviously in in college sports some sports obviously generate a tremendous amount of money and others are a don't generate anything or are actually they just simply cost money so you look at college football and you look at college basketball they drive all the revenue and then you got the rowing team and the tennis team and the gymnastics teams and how do they generate revenue well they don't they actually cost university money but they think those sports are necessary and otherwise you're only going to have about four or five sports in your entire university so then how do you fairly determine the employee status and then how do you compensate that properly and then how does that affect college hockey in that respect because you know They're a big – like, they don't obviously drive the same amount of – depending on the university, they don't drive the same (laughs) amount of of revenue um, in an overall standpoint, but some universities, college is number – like, college hockey is number one, and they drive the most revenue. So, it's a tangled mess. I wanted to talk to you about it because it intrigues me, the tangled mess, and how do do they get out of it? And then, like, what's the most logical – and straightforward solution to
8: their problems. I, I it, it's been going on for a while, and and it, and it started. <laughs> yeah, it started two years ago. So people can look this up. There was the, it's the famous case called the Austin case. That's what the right. NCAA. That's what sparked a couple of things. It sparked name engine, name image and likeness. NIL, which everyone hears about now, which means a player is allowed to profit off of their likeness. They weren't allowed to do that before. So for a college hockey player, for instance, say say Adam Fantilli over the summer said, I want to run the Adam Fantilli hockey camp. He wasn't allowed to do that before, which is kind of ridiculous. So right. now he's allowed to to profit off his own name, image, and likeness. And in losing that case, and it's important to note, the NCAA has lost just about every case that's ever gone to court. Uh, um, yeah, they... it opened the floodgates to a couple of different things. NIL being one of them, uh, it also meant that the NCAA became really concerned with anything legislatively that they had that limited the player. It's why the one-time transfer became a rule and and the transfer portal became a thing. It kind of opened the gates for a couple of things. Now there's another case that's still going through the the court system in the U.S., uh, and it's Johnson versus the NCAA. And what that case alleges is that uh, like you said, student athletes should be classified as employees. The number one reason being A, they generate, you know, income for the university. Also, the coaches in the university dictate so much of their schedule. So the the right. case is they're employees because you have a coach that tells them when they have to be at practice, when they're when they're going to eat their meals. Everything is their their schedule is so much dictated by their status as a student athlete that <laughs> not like a no, not anymore. like a normal student.
1: They have a class schedule exactly. that they can or can't, if they don't want to go, professors in most cases, and I know like a like I mean university as well, they don't care. If you don't show up, I'll just give yeah. you a bad grade. But college athletes have to maintain their grade level and they're monitored on their grades and their attendance.
8: Exactly. So this lawsuit it's still going through the process now is alleging that because there's so much control by the athletic programs on the student athletes, their schedule, and everything else, that they should be classified as employees. Now the NCAA is alleging, of course, well, this can't happen because how are we going to pay, like you said, the members of the football team and also the members of a non revenue generating sport? Uh the NCAA maintains that if they pay one, they have to pay all. And if they But they don't have to pay them equally uh no they don't i mean i think there's ways around it so there's concerns about title nine about you know what you pay one you have to pay the other and everything else but i i I think they could come up with a system personally where what if you dictated the pay based upon the revenue the sport generates and taking into consider i think you do also have to take in consideration the the scholarship amount like if if a player is receiving a seventy thousand dollar scholarship that is essentially compensation um, you know, so the question is, is, is that compensation enough from big college basketball and big college football where they're generating billions of dollars if you include the television contracts?
1: Right. So then the question remains for me then, thinking it through the, you know, the lens of an economist, is I would, based on the sport, say if it was college football, say so you're looking at Notre Dame football, which generates a ridiculous amount of money comparative to obviously Notre Dame hockey. I would say I would put that say 80% of the revenue that's driven through say Notre Dame football goes back to the football program. They give 20% of that back into the other sports and say hockey does the same. So they get 80% of their revenue and 20 goes back into the coffer to help pay. If you know, the tennis programs and the golf programs and gymnastics programs so that those students get, compensated now they those students are already getting compensated because they have a scholarship as well and then they get like maybe you call it a bonus and that's like you structure it in some way where then you know every semester you get x amount of dollars and but you get less and if they start complaining well why do the, the, the football players get more well they drive more revenue right that's no different exactly. than why does the executive in our company get more money than i do well you one person pushes a broom and the other guy is the CFO. Well, there's a, obviously a massive difference between the impact of what those people do and how much, at re- the end of the day, how much revenue do they drive? And I think that's yeah. it's, and if I, if you're on the gymnastic side or like, say, the volleyball side and you're complaining about it, one, you should be happy you get a scholarship comparative to the rest of the world you're in. And two, if you get any kind of revenue extra check, you should be happy and walk away.
8: Well, I think, and that's what it boils down to, too, right? So you've got athletes that are receiving compensation through scholarship. That, uh, like you said, at the very beginning of this, is costing the school money. The school; these schools are running sports that are not only they not generate revenue, but they're at a cost. They're running at a deficit. Absolutely. Uh, if you include the scholarships and the coaching salaries, and you have to. Uh, and then on the flip side of that, you have big college football programs where, okay, you know, the head coach is being paid. 12 15 million dollars a year, which is crazy. And the starting quarter, yeah, and the starting quarterbacks on a scholarship worth 65,000. Well, is that really balanced out the right way? No, it's not. <laughs> like, yeah, if you're the star not. quarterback, yeah, who's going to be a top five player in the draft, and uh, you know, you're making essentially 65,000 in compensation, and your coach is making 15 million, you got to sit there and go, well, man, Wait a minute, now something something's out of whack. I like, I like, I like 15, you, coach,
1: here. but you know, yeah. Yeah, then that's that's an obvious situation that I'm curious because I mean and they have to do that they would have to do that I think this is the fair we do across the board because in some universities they may not have a high um, level basketball team or football team and college hockey may be the one that drives the most revenue so let's look at you know University of Maine University of Vermont like there are some obviously universities where college hockey is number one and then so the college hockey players should get more. Now the question becomes is you know say you are going to a university where football and basketball are number 1. Say it's Michigan and hockey mm-hmm. maybe is a third for, you know driver of revenue and you just may not get as much money. But then wait a minute, you look at the University of Vermont and Maine who don't have those programs that drive like a lot of money but hockey is number one and the value of what you get actually at vermont or maybe at maine maybe more than what you get at michigan
8: yeah it's, it's a good point you know especially because there's so many schools where they're uh, you know hockey specific to a certain extent right there's so many schools in college hockey where the where and because of the way it shook out over the years in the 80s and 90s where hockey's division one and everybody else is division three right and, and division three there's no compensation at all there's not even any scholarships so uh you know there's somewhere you know like uh uh who's who's some of the ones that are still d2 i isn't uh i think is, i think minnesota duluth is d2 or d3 yeah. and all their other sports but Except division one and hockey so yeah, then if you go to duluth like
1: you're getting some money you might get more yeah. money at duluth minnesota duluth than you will at minnesota university as a golden gopher or you if know, you are, were to uh, split right. it that way. Yeah. Right. So that yeah. may be a situation where, you know, re- the recruiting tool changes based and you have an advantage of maybe being a, a university that's smaller, but hockey's the number one sport and you drive all the revenue and you get a bigger piece of the pie and you may get more money. If you go to that school, yeah. you still get a full, full scholarship, full ride and you get a university degree. And you get and get more money on the side. And you may just decide, I'm going to go to a smaller university instead. I'm curious to see how this all plays out. Because I think it radically can change what the recruiting tools and tactics are to some of the smaller universities. And the problem in college hockey is the big traditional schools in college hockey may not have the same level of influence because it's really going to be dictated by football and basketball. And the other sports yeah. are all going to be secondary in the grand and scheme one of the things.
8: things. too, one of the things, too, that, gets, that I keep bringing up in relation to this, but no one really else is, because no one – I think when it's being covered, it's being covered by basketball and football writers because those are the sports that are affected the most. Right. But one of the things that I keep thinking about, specifically to hockey, is if the NCAA is going to be okay with players receiving payment or players playing with players who are receiving payment, what it also opens up, I think, down the road is – CHL players coming in, exactly the ability for the NCAA to now recruit out of the CHL, yeah. Because that their biggest issue now is well, they're playing with pro players. If guys are getting assigned, you know, down from that are on entry level contracts. Well, what's the difference? You're paying players too. So, like at that point, the concern of genie back in the bottle now. No. At that point, you can't say, well, they're not amateurs. But under your new amateurism rule, CHL players would be amateurs just like college players are amateurs, with the exception of the ones that are under NHL contract, obviously. So I think it could open the door to that as well. Interesting. Well,
1: Mike, thank you very much for coming on the show again. Really appreciate the insight of what's going on and how that's going to impact college hockey and look forward to speaking to you next week. Sounds good. Thanks. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned and we'll be back right after this.
4: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit InstatSport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics.
6: Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players.
0: You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We're back. It's Hockey Prospect Radio powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. We're speaking with Patrick Williams in our Around the AHL Segment, let's talk about the Coachella Valley Firebirds. Now, obviously, 15, 20 years ago, if you would have told either one of us that there was going to be a hockey team in Palm Springs and the American Hockey League would have said, like, take your medication or stop taking the drugs that you're on because that's insane. That's never going to happen. But it has happened. Um, They threw $500 million in the facility, not just obviously for the for the team, but for the massive facility they built. And it's gone off like gangbusters, the place, lots of crowds, lots of energy. And, you know, I was talking to Tro- Troy, Troy Bodie about it. And I said, you're going to have to beat off players with a stick. All the veterans are going to want to go play in coach of Va- Valley. Where would you rather play there or anywhere else? Hey, like, Hey, you're a veteran player in the day you can go play golf with Grant Fuhrer, who's their color color commentator. Like, it's a great place to live, and you get to play hockey there. Like, talk about how that franchise has really exploded into the scene in the American Hockey League.
9: Yeah, so, you know, I, I had spoken with Troy myself a couple months back, and, you know, like, so the summertime teams make, you know, they have their, their, their target list of players, right? You know, and then, chose especially had that this year knowing that they don't have a ton of prospects in the system yet because Seattle's only had two drafts at this point they hit all their all their first number of like five or six targets what of course they did <laughs> and and that was even you know they had to be upfront that you know like like we're going to have to be on the road for the first two months of the year we're going to have a 16 game road trip and even so the player said yeah I'll sign up for that you know So there was no, there's no hesitation, right? Like, um, and you know, they, they did. I mean, they, they went to training camp Uh, from there. They, they were on the road till uh, the early part of November. Um, That's when they just settled in Palm Springs before that they were based in Seattle. But even after they got to Palm Springs, the building wasn't ready yet. And so they still, they had a 16 game road trip um and they went something like i think it was 11 and 5 on the road trip and um set themselves up great obviously coming home and now it's a real heavy back schedule uh for the second half and they have just been running away almost uh you know other than Calgary to kind of keep them honest um it's been a fantastic debut uh for them
1: well there then there was a tactical advantage for them as well to go on a 16 game road trip because now that the new team gets to bond on the road for mm-hmm. 16 games for basically, you know, s- over six weeks, you're on the road together and yeah. traveling together and like nothing bonds a team like road trips. So you're road tripping for six weeks. You're like a, basically a rock band. And then you get to come home to this brand new building with all brand new facilities in one of the more beautiful places in the entire U S like, yeah. I, I honestly, I think they're like, I think they're, I don't think Troy Bodie needs to do anything but like pick up the phone and say, sorry we no longer have any room. Sorry we no longer have any room. Because the he, the recruiting's already done for him. He doesn't have yeah. to like convince anybody to play there. Yeah.
9: And and well, yeah, and you know, that's a great point. That's a new team. Like, you know, you had a you had the contingent that played last year in Charlotte, you know, as part of the, the dual affiliation. Yeah. But most of these guys came from other places or there there were a couple draft picks that trickled in, a couple free agents. And so, yeah, they allowed to, uh, to a great extent, these guys showed up kind of not knowing each other, uh, by and large. So they were able to use that. And not only the time of the road, just the time even when they got settled in Palm Springs. So everybody has to go find a house together. So, they're, you know, guys are finding, finding apartments, and, and guys are learning their way around town. And, you know, like, yeah, this is the place to go for that or the, that. You know, so it's just, you know, obviously time on the golf course. You know, I mean, so... Um, a lot of different opportunities for for everybody to get to know each other. So that, but by the time December hit and they finally had some home games on their calendar, they were already a pretty well-oiled machine, and um, you know they've not slowed down since then. And here they are. I mean, top uh, point percentage in the entire American Hockey League, and really showed no signs of slowing down. Uh, and, and you know, I, I kind of I can't wait to see when they actually can cycle some prospects in see what they might have, because this is largely just a group of free agents, veteran type guys, uh, kind of anybody they could cobble together uh, as a roster.
1: Yeah. And they cobbled it together. They look great. Um, and that just reminds me of what the Vegas Golden Knights did in their first year in the yeah. NHL, right? It's the same kind of thing. And they, that's going to be able to propel them for a decade moving forward. They're going to get a lot of like great Love from the community from that standpoint. Uh, let's uh, shift gears and talk about the Colorado Eagles in terms of you know they made some trades that impacted their American Hockey League franchise. But thoughts overall on the franchise and you know so what to expect from Greg Cronin and the rest of their guys through the rest of the season.
9: Well, yeah, with with, uh, with Greg Cronin, like you know, like, let's take Justin Barrett for example, right? Like so, he came in as a rookie last year with Colorado. He obviously was eventually traded to Montreal, but I mean, what a fantastic first year, and kind of yes. uh, way to learn of the pro business uh, from Greg Cronin, somebody who's been in the hockey for thirty-five years. Um, you know, Greg Cronin is a real interesting mix. Like he, a lot of ways, he's very old school. Um, and certainly, his, his uh, you know the first impression he makes is that he's kind of this gruff, you know, like tell it like it is guy, but you start to talk to him and like a lot of ways he's very modern very new age you know and the way he approaches development the way he um you know he breaks down training uh you know drills to the to the smallest degree right so you look at a guy like Barry right a young defenseman and, and defense I mean you know this lake can eat up young defensemen, right and so I mean he got such a good uh foundation early that you know he was able to go eventually when he did go to Montreal and, and, and Laval, and now he's kind of he's stuck up with the big team. He just had a really good uh, infrastructure in place with his game. And really that's kind of, uh, if you look across the entire Colorado system now, that's what the goal is. And, you know, with the Avalanche too, right? Like you're not looking to hit home runs with your prospects right now, right? Like you need a, a piece here, a piece there, somebody to come in. Uh, play third line. Somebody come in and maybe be a sixth defenseman, um, backup goalie. You know the, all those little those little spots that are still very important. But so, Greg Cronin really now has an opportunity to really hone in on that, and, and it, it also creates tremendous competition on that that NHL roster. That all these because you know, everybody wants five, a shot to play five, on 10, a Stanley Cup winner. You know, let's say you yeah, have five ten forwards going for maybe one two spots with, with the big team. And this year's obviously been a little bit different with av- with the Avalanche having so many injuries. But, um, you know, the, the competition level, I think, is really the thing I, uh, that stands out with with, with the entire Eagles system with Gray code And for the Avs, I mean, the HL system for years and years and years was a real, real problem spot. They weren't able to develop players well. They went through a lot of coaches. Uh, but, you know, really since Greg Cronin came in and especially, I think, since they got the team settled there in in Loveland, Colorado, which is about maybe 45 minutes, an hour or so north of uh, where the ABS are. Um, it's just been a fantastic setup. And, uh, you know, every night they play, uh, it's a full building, great arena, uh, and really kind of just an ideal setup for the Avs.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you had mentioned Greg Cronin because it was in a conversation Conversations I've had with Brian Willsey, their director of player development, who works directly and closer with with Greg Cronin. And he was talking about that specifically about his ability to like hone in on a player's skill set. And okay, okay, here are the three things we need you to work on, and this is why, because we want you to get to the NHL. And if you do this, this is what's gonna get you there and then you'll just have to adapt a little bit more once you're there, but this is going to get you in the door from that standpoint. And it's like, I think sometimes when you look at a former player and the style and you just think that's who they are as a person. And that's rarely the case. I always find the Mm -hmm. toughest guys are always actually the nicest guys and the ones that are perhaps the most thoughtful in terms of their processes in in that regard. So, but Patrick, once again, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show, giving us some insight of the American hockey league And look forward to speaking to you after the trade deadline, and we'll see how things sort of played out for us. Absolutely. Thank you. That's Patrick Williams. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat. STAT's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. INSTAT, the Institute of Statistics.
6: Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players.
0: Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. This is Hockey Prospect Radio, powered by Junior Prospect
1: Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream. For student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to another level at JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com, I'm speaking with Mark Cronowitz, CEO of Silent Ice. This week's topic, when we, talk, we are chatting about game changers, is I actually specifically want to ask you, because your model within your academies is different than the standard models that are out there, you went to a hub system where you have hubs in Alberta as well as in British Columbia. And can you elaborate? I know we talked about it briefly, but could you elaborate the methodology, the strategy, why your initial group thought a hub system would be more effective not only for to managing These types of academies but also for the parents and and for the athletes themselves
10: no thanks Shane and uh it's really good as we're kind of wrapping up the season here in uh youth sports uh we just actually wrapped up our our final league play uh with our U15 division uh this weekend down in Calgary and you know heavily scouted and maybe that's where we start off with um when we look at uh, the hub model and how we wanted to build this out, uh, one of the first principles that we used was is that we wanted to make sure that uh, we had a consistent level of play and development at each location that we had a, uh, an academy. And to do that, uh, there's two different ways you can do that. You can go and find a group of people to lead a new area and uh, have them fund their own model, but unfortunately, what that does is is that if you don't ha- if you don't have consistent funding, you have some groups that you know the haves and the have nots. And uh, you know, primarily, what we wanted to do was to have a consistent level across all geographic locations. Number two, as was looking at, and Shane, you and I have talked about this idea of the scouting hubs. And yes. you know, let's let's just call it for what it is. You know, there's not as many scouts in Prince Albert as there is in a Vancouver Giants game. Would you agree with that? Of and- course.
1: And proximity principle matters when it comes to scouting, whether it's Western Hockey League uh, based Western Hockey League scouts or NHL scouts. They primarily end up in certain hubs in certain areas, and they will go to certain areas because there's more teams in that vicinity. So they can knock off as many games as possible. It's just sim- simply economics and time. So that model of, from that standpoint, from what you guys are thinking, is accurate and correct.
10: Yeah. And so if we look at those major hubs, so like we have a hub in Lloydminster, which actually services, you know, kind of central Northern Alberta and all the way into Saskatchewan. So we have players that come in across the border into Saskatchewan. We have two hubs in, in Edmonton, one in Spruce Grove. We're directly attached to the Spruce Grove Saints program, which is a really unique advantage for those kids. It's a little bit different. Uh, we have a program in Edmonton, Edmonton HC, uh, which is based in Edmonton. So we have three kind of up in Northern Alberta. Then we have Calgary, Lethbridge, uh, the Okanagan, uh, Langley, and then on the Island. We also have with our U15 division, we have a team, uh, the, the um, North Stars that play out of the uh, out of Prince George, which also give us a Northern BC presence. And what happens then is, is that we don't actually go play those games. We don't actually have a showcase weekend uh, in Lloydminster. We do everything in either Edmonton, Calgary, or the Vancouver area. And to your point on scouting proximity, it matters. So like this weekend, it was packed with guys Uh, back it up a year uh, when was hockey super league, U 18 division. We just didn't see the same amount of, you know, penetration and then guys coming out. If we had a showcase, for example, in Viking, Alberta, really difficult to get a group, uh, the scouting crowds out, whether it's junior a or major junior NCAA. So we felt that by putting them in Calgary, Vancouver, And in Edmonton, it allows then the people who want to see those athletes play makes it much more accessible. The other thing is is that we do it. Everything's in a showcase weekend. So all the teams show up here uh, on a a showcase weekend. So we have all eight of our teams in our U18 division that are competing on a weekend. That means that all all scouts can see every player in our league if they want to. We really think that has an advantage uh, for the whole scouting community. And uh, we're expecting to see some, uh, you know, moving up, uh, I think we've talked about in the past, Uh, you know, we had about 12 of our players that played JPHL this year. were in Western Hockey League camps. We'd expect that number to double this year with our 2008 players. Uh, Some of our guys are very, very uh, moving up the draft rankings in the WHL draft rankings and, you know, finally getting that exposure. And I think the hub model has a lot to do with that chain.
1: Mark, other questions about the hub model? And you you briefly touched on it in terms of, maintaining proper finance across all the hubs so that it's consistent in terms of their economic models that all the players have the same level of expertise and access to not only ice but to personnel and that there's no shortcuts in any situation so that regardless of where a parent has their child playing that they know that they're going to get the same level of care as someone in Edmonton or in Calgary or, you know, in Vancouver. So if you're on the island or if you're in Lloydminster or you're in the Okanagan, that doesn't, doesn't affect what quality that you're, each player is going to have.
10: Well, and that's the thing. It's this idea of being able to use, you know, your larger community for purchasing power. An example would be our relationship with PowerEdge Pro. I think a lot of people know that that was one of the fundamental training methodologies that McDavid used. Uh, so us being local in Edmonton, we're very familiar with it. And you know, implementing PowerEdge Pro into your program is not cheap. It's 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 definitely a you know it's an upper level development uh, uh, athlete development model that they put in place, and includes having equipment and all the other things and and uh, certified instructors. And all of our teams and all of our hubs have access to PowerEdge Pro. And we think it's a key part of part of what you need to put in from your development level. The second one would be things like true movement. Again, uh, a lot of athletes are using that. It's a, a different way of training. Um, and a lot of our hubs now are, have that in place. We're going to have it across all of Western Canada. So all of our ac- athletes can access it. The other one comes down to this. I know it sounds small, but you know, when you're traveling and you're on the road, I, I mentioned to you, our whole our all of our players stay in the same type of hotels. Uh, the, Post game meals are actually brought to the rink, for example, and all the teams get the same type of food. So you don't have one group, one team eating filet mignon and the other one's getting beat to 73. That just doesn't happen. And we want to have that kind of consistent level of Everything that we do, we want to make sure that it's at the highest standard so that we don't leave anything off the table. Uh, I'm a big believer in the 1% model, which means you just get a little bit better all the time. 1% better, 1% better. And, you know, we've tried to look at everything inside of that holistic model and say, how can we just be a little bit better? And then implement that across all of our hubs uh, in the Junior Prospects Hockey League. Question about...
1: The mental coaches and how that's implemented into your different hubs because it's become much more prominent, particularly in the last couple of years, where NHL teams and NHL players are advocating that more, where it's not at the beginning of the year or at the end of the year, but it's something that players can access continually through you know their playing and i think at the younger age it's even more critical because currently their brain is developing at a rate that'll never develop like that once they're adults so that critical time of like you know 13 to really you know 20 before they really before they move on that if if that's not in line then you know they're less likely to be successful not only in their hockey career but in their life
10: I think it's interesting, like the individual sports. Uh, I used to work with uh, Jen Heil, who's a, a Olympic mogul skier. She won a gold medal in Torino. and I was there with her. And I know the role that her sports psychologist played was critical to her success and getting herself on the podium. And yet, when you look at team sports, it's maybe not done quite at the same level. And and I, I think that would even relate to us. I was talking to a parent just recently, and. Uh, asking for access for individual one-on-one uh, sports psychology and believe it or not it's not as easy as you think to find uh, you have groups that will do it kind of at across at a right. team level and that's where we're looking to to implement and improve but it, you know when you talk about that individual coaching I think there's still a great opportunity uh, I have a minor in sports psychology maybe I should go back and get my master's because the amount of people that asked me about this um and we're think we're fortunate we've
1: been fortunate on our radio show we've had dr kevin willis who is a sports clinical psychologist and all his clients are only hockey players he had worked with saul miller in the past and wrote a book on hockey grit grind and mind and that's all he does is just help hockey players and he was a junior b coach and he's a level five coach in the united states and so when i talk about those situations i always end up referring back to kevin in in that regard because he's so embedded into the hockey industry in that respect
10: yeah and we have these great history with dr terry orlick uh, you know kind of being at the forefront of high performance uh, psychology and and how that kind of works and Uh, You know, I I look at, for example, like the women's national team, like they have a full-time dedicated uh, sports psychologist, Dr. Dunn from the University of Alberta that works with the women's national team on a full-time basis. So he'd be with the players for the last three weeks and he'll actually take them right into the quadrennial, right into the Olympics. So Absolutely. We see that at the highest levels and it's something that we're looking at doing how we can improve. And, you know, one of our mottos is, is continuous improvement. And for us, this was our first season. And, you know, I think we, we really kind of set the bar pretty high and we have great opportunities to improve what we're actually doing and how we're developing our athletes. And I think to your point, Shane, that mental and emotional side of that game is something that's still quite untapped. And it's that last piece in becoming 1% better uh, every day. So. Well, Mark, I want to thank you very much for
1: coming on our show once again. We really appreciate it and we look forward to speaking to you next week.
10: Thanks, Gene. Have a great week.
1: That's Mark Kronowitz, CEO of Silent Ice. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat. The Institute of Statistics.
6: Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at OutsideEdge.ca.
0: Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We are back empowered by Junior Hockey Prospect League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at Junior Prospect Hockey League.com. Once again, we have Dave Poulin on and on our segment of Behind the Curtain. And Dave, interesting topic this week is the GM's role in the amateur scouting meetings and the NHL draft. Uh, because sometimes I think... Outside of the industry, there is a perception that it's just, you know, the GM runs the show and that's not always the case, but they certainly have input because particularly in the first round, because you know want to ensure that, you know, they hit on those picks. That's absolutely critical for your, for your success. But, you know, being in the room and having that discussion and being assistant general manager, what are your thoughts about the general manager's role? in the scouting meetings and as it leads into the NHL draft?
11: It's a very interesting question, Shane. Let me qualify this by saying I've never been a general manager in the National Hockey League. Uh, I've been a vice president of hockey operations. Claude Wazell was actually the assistant GM in Toronto, but I've worked closely with two general managers, Brian Burke and Dave Nonis, who combined to win a Stanley Cup in Anaheim. I worked with them in Anaheim during that cup year, but I also worked with them in Toronto. I was the general manager of an American Hockey League team with the Toronto Marlies. And I was also, you know, the longtime coach at Notre Dame where you're the de facto general manager. But, you know, the direct reports, amateur scouting and pro scouting came to me in my role as vice president of hockey ops, and particularly before Claude Lozell joined us. And we used to laugh about it, actually, because if a team didn't make the playoffs or got knocked out early and the general manager started getting too involved in scouting, right? it could become an issue because you've been building a book. If you're a scout, I say you, if you're a scout, you've been building books on kids for two years, three years, and someone is going to come out late in their 17th birth year and just before the draft and see two performances and make a decision on a player when you had built an entire book about them. Right. And you simply can't do that. And the best GMs let their scouts do their jobs. And, and I think if you, the best thing a general manager can do is make it clear what his belief is in what the hockey team is going to be built like, what his belief is in players. And these are through constant conversations with his scouts and with primarily with his, with his head amateur scout. And then he filters down. He puts him in charge of his scouts and says, look, Here's what we think this hockey team needs. Here's what we like in a player. Those are very key parts of a general manager's role. He's got to make that known. It can't be a mystery as to what it's going. And, and best available player is I agree. You know, when you're trying to draft for a position, Shane, and I will tell you back in the day in Philadelphia when I was a player, we were going to draft a defenseman. And each year in the draft, we'd take a defenseman in the first round can't do it like that. You absolutely can't. You're better off taking the best available player. And then if he becomes a really good player at the wrong position, you have a trade asset. You can go trade for the defense. And you don't know what your
1: roster is going to look like in five years when the kid's ready to play
11: anyway. You have no idea, but you know, I think it's important from a communication standpoint that the GM make all that known. And he also asks the right questions. And I love having the GM involved in the draft interviews Number one, it's the presence of him in the room. And you wanted to see, and and interestingly enough, Shane, you wanted to see if your own scouts acted differently with the general manager in the room. Like, did they talk more or less with the GM in the room? Did they feel like, you know, they were putting on airs with the GM in the room or were they more willing to talk without him in the room? Those were key factors, but I loved having, Uh, both Brian or Dave Knois, Brian Burke or Dave Nonis in the room to see the way the kids react. Right. And, you know, we had some excellent interviews. I can still remember, you know, the interviews from 2010 to 2014. I can remember a number of kids, how impressed I was with their interviews, be it an Oscar Clefbaum, a Ricardo Cal, an Aaron Eckblad, kids that we didn't end up drafting, but just how they carried themselves, how they presented. And, and we also, and I won't get into particulars, but walked away from kids because of their interviews.
7: Right. And
11: because we just didn't feel they represented what we were looking for in a player. What you're looking for in a player, it really comes down from the general manager. He has his belief on how to build his hockey team. And you might imagine it was very different between Brian Burke and Dave Donas. right? And Brian Burke, particularly in that day, in 2010, in 2011, in 2012, was very adamant about how he wanted to build his team what ingredients were necessary and a large part was based on his stanley cup experience in 2007 with anaheim but i think that that the danger and and the first question you would ask is okay did the general manager scout because that's not always the case percent. take a take a gm like pierre dorian pierre dorian's a scout And he came up all the way through the ranks and was a head amateur scout with a very strong success rate. Well, his input as a GM is a little bit different from someone. And there are a number of GMs. Like Rick Dudley was another
1: example of that.
11: Absolutely a perfect example, Shane, of a guy. Dudz was a scout and we worked together. And that's what he was. I mean, he was a scout. I worked with him in a scouting role, not a GM role. So you're exactly right. He was a scout. And because of that, he also respected that part of it. And, you know, and there's a number of successful GMs who didn't scout, who didn't sit in cold arenas, you know, all over the world, literally see players multiple times, see the progression from 16 to 17 through their draft year, see a gangly six foot four inch kid who'd grown four inches in the last year. And it really looked like he was coming on, but was still a raw prospect. So a lot of factors like that go in to the GM's involvement in the actual draft.
1: Right. One of the interesting uh, uh, aspects is I wrote a paper in my master's program about strategic leadership. And I had a conversation with Dean Lombardi at the time. This must have been about, oh, eight years ago. And he, he was actually very blunt and honest. He goes, you know, I got myself involved in the draft, in our draft process. I really pushed myself towards these certain players I had seen late and it blew up in my face once. I'm like, okay, you know, those things will happen. And then it blew up in my face again as he was sort of laughing at himself. And he goes, I actually had to step back. And I I thought to myself, like, wait a minute, like what's going on here? Like either a, I don't know how to scout or B I'm not serving my role. He goes, wait a minute. I totally forgot that I'm a lawyer by trade. What's my best asset? I'm a facilitator, and I understand how to build and tear down arguments. So what he did is he changed his role in the meeting to a facilitator, and he would simply try to punch holes in the argument of your what you're trying to profile, you build to that player, just to ensure that every base was covered. And then when he did that, their success rate, it was much better, and he was more comfortable in that role and understanding them, not just – and not, he goes, I learned my lesson the hard way. I got burnt once and I didn't learn it. And I got burnt my head twice and then I did learn it. And I just find that his um, openness about that was really critical to the paper I wrote about strategic leadership of, you know, trying to recognize that.
11: And that's the point about asking the right questions. And, you know, and I played that role in the amateur meetings and I had an amateur background because of my, my years of college coaching where I had seen the elite kids at 15, 16, 17 years old. And we were trying to make decisions on college players and seeing the development through that time. And, you know, and, and Dave Morrison, who was my head amateur scout, and I would have long conversations about this and it was a strong staff. And, you know, Garth Malarchuk was a big part of it. John, John Ray, Lilley, yeah. Rangers, terrific, you know, guys. And, and Tommy Bergman was a big voice coming out of Sweden at that point. He'd have been the Willie Nylander decision. And, you know, but you want, the GM's presence, you want his voice, you want his direction. But to me, the best ones know, and just like in any walk of life, you know, the the, uh, the vice president of sales can't come in and sell in the field when he hasn't done it. He just can't. And the best ones let people do their jobs. And those are the guys with the highest success rates of, you know, of going through the draft. And it's such such a demanding process and i love the meetings where the back and forth went on between the scouts and you watched on exactly like you are talking about it was a courtroom it was how do you base your decisions what do you base your decisions on um you know time of year and the homework done behind the scenes is really large and they you know not only do they interview the player but they interview the coach and the billet and you know other local people maybe teachers Um, on how the person has developed how the player on and off the ice has grown and so the role is an interesting one and it's natural that the gm thinks he wants to get more involved particularly with teams that don't make the playoffs because they're available to go out and see them yeah and you know and u18s particularly yeah i see the u18s look around and see who's at the u18s and it's guys that didn't make the playoffs or got knocked out in the first round. And then the immediacy is we have to do something. We have to do something big. We have to hit big in the draft. And the most important thing they can do is let the individuals do their jobs.
1: Well, particularly because generally you're looking at, uh, you know, if you're in the top 10, you're still generally looking at a three to four year window before that player is a really strong contributor in your team. You know, you might get somebody who jumps early, but still that's it's, it's a tough road for a young kid to make it into the NHL in that respect. So there, you know, patience is needed in in that role. And I always have fun times, fun times talking to GMs about that as well. Dave, uh, thank you very much uh, for coming on the show. Always appreciate the insight. Um, This has been another edition of hockey prospect radio on Sirius XM NHL network radio powered by Instat hockey and junior prospect hockey league, Western Canada's newest developmental stream. You can listen to the show on our favorite podcast network or YouTube and follow us on Twitter at HP radio and at hockeyprospect.com. Thank you to all our guests and we will see you
2: at the rink.